0: As an American, I love living in Plymouth. This city is rich in history and culture. It has spectacular scenery and amazing architecture. In my time here, I have discovered plenty of hidden histories tucked away, each of them with fascinating stories to tell. I'm Bobby Inman. Come with me as we explore Beyond the Mayflower Steps. As we've explored in this series, Plymouth's history is deep and varied. Its place has long been cemented into the annals of important cities. But it's not all war and explorers and pilgrims. This city has certainly had its fair share of celebrity encounters as well, with many American stars of stage and screen visiting the city over the years. I wonder what they must have thought as they walked beyond the Mayflower Steps. I imagine that most Americans that come to Plymouth, no matter how famous, must come and see the steps, even if it's just to drive by and get a glimpse. Coming to the monument myself, I try to imagine those that have stood before me looking out over the sound, and when I learn of a past visit of a noted American, I always wonder if they were able to steal a moment and visit. Could they have even managed to walk up the hoe? In this day of social media and instant attention and updates, it's hard to imagine that someone like the Beatles could have strolled around and sat in the sun. But that's exactly what happened as they were filming the Magical Mystery Tour here in Devon, resulting in a famous photograph taken by David Reedfern. Today, sculptures mark the spot where they were sitting, allowing anyone to recreate that iconic scene. The Beatles are just the tip of the iceberg as far as the musical history of Plymouth is concerned, that's for sure. Not far from the Barbican is the now-closed real cinema, once known as the ABC Theater, which before showing movies hosted such acts as the Fab Four themselves in 1963, Chuck Berry in 1964, The Who in 1965, and Leonard Cohen and Roy Orbison both in 1967. What if those walls could talk? Continue following Knott Street west until it meets Union Street and an imposing brick building sits catty-cornered across the way. This was once the Odeon Theater, which hosted Glenn Miller only months before he disappeared in 1944. Early American rocker Gene Vincent also played there, along with one of the pioneers of American rock. And I'm talking to Jack Spence who attended that amazing gig. And so, so Jack, in, in, this, in this episode, we're, we're talking about some of the, the different Americans that have come over here and performed. And when, when we were interviewing before, you spoke that you had attended concert of, of somebody that I would have loved to have seen and probably a song because of the, the show Happy Days that, that I have been associated with since, since I was a boy. So just if you could just describe that in a few words, that it's just amazing to me.
1: Um, it's a long time ago, but I can remember going to see Bill Haley in the Comets when they were doing their tour of the UK. They came to Plymouth and I must have been about uh, 15 or 16 at the time, I think. Of course it was in the days when rock and roll was taking off and of course they just launched their new record Rock Around the Clock and See You Later Alligator I think on the other side and it was was a rave thing at that time, it was pre-Elvis I think you know pre elvis rave so it was the uh, he was the king of rock at that time and it was quite a, quite something for him to come to plymouth
0: it, just the stories i've read and and been a fan of bill haley for a long time the energy that i heard that he put into concerts was was the launch of that rock and roll concert and and that that kind of craze and and i i really can can understand yeah. what you're trying to
1: talk about there that's yes it was so different of course because we had heard nothing like it I mean, we, I know that um, pop music dates back to the, the late 1950s. Buddy Holly particularly, I think, uh, changed everything. But uh, it was the rock and roll sound which really Bill Haley introduced, and uh, that, that really caused quite a stir.
0: Oh, he, he is certainly one of the, uh, the godfathers of rock and roll, that is for sure. Jack, once again, you, you have been such an invaluable source of, of amazing and fascination. I appreciate your time once again. you a much. I would have loved to have been in that crowd. What a show.
2: Vous écoutez, au delà des marches du Mayflower, le podcast.
1: You are listening to Beyond the Mayflower Steps, the podcast. Stai ascoltando al là delle scale del Mayflower, il podcast. You are listening to Beyond the Mayflower Steps, the podcast.
0: Across from the former Odeon building is the modern music venue of Plymouth, the Pavilions which has been the site of classic concerts back in the day from Queen and Duran Duran to modern lineup including Michael Bublé, Alice Cooper and Pink. Carry on down Union Street and you'll come across an unfortunately run-down shell of a building. That is so unique and historic, the sadness of its dilapidated state is what I believe to be Plymouth's worst architectural tragedy, the Palace Theater. Opened in 1898, It ran as a true variety theater until the 60s, when it became a bingo hall, then back to a theater and nightclub until it closed in 2006. Performers the likes of Harry Houdini and Charlie Chaplin headlined shows there, and it is the site of Laurel and Hardy's final live stage appearance. It's been closed since 2006, falling into the condition it is in today, and not far from the palace was a short-lived nightclub called Top Rank Suite, which once hosted a concert by the Talking Heads and the Ramones in 1977. Union Street eventually leads to an area of Plymouth called Devonport, that used to be a city in its own right. Not far from the Naval Dockyard, this unassuming neighborhood doesn't seem the location of an epically historic rock venue, but you would be very surprised. Only open for four years, the Van Dyke Club hosted amazing acts What a four years it must have been. Jethro Tull played the initial gig in 1968, and bands such as Pink Floyd, Derek and the Dominoes, Yes, and Genesis filled the schedule until Manfred Mann played the last show there in 1972. Plymouth's cultural history is rich and diverse, like the story of the city itself. People from all walks of life travel here to soak in its antiquity and heritage. The Mayflower 400 commemorations will bring in visitors from all corners of the world. And I can imagine even a few celebrity guests might be attending as well. This series has examined Plymouth's past in several ways, and Mayflower 400 will expand and continue that journey throughout the year. I was lucky enough to speak to someone vital in bringing the Mayflower 400 commemorations to life, Joe Lucemore, about the upcoming events. Now it is my distinct pleasure to be here with one of the chief architects of the Mayflower 400 commemorations, Joe Lusmore.
2: Bobby, I am so pleased to speak to you after all this time. <laughs> after all
0: of these years, it is really great to get to meet you face to face and in person. I uh, I've I really have been looking forward to this.
2: And you know, the other thing that I find really intriguing is actually talking to an American about a Mayflower commemoration. Here in the UK,
0: absolutely, and, and this is a wonderful chance for Plymouth, in my opinion. I really think this is a chance for us to to show off what we've got. Uh, I love this city, and I have fallen in love with it since I've been here. So, uh, so, so, so what do, what do you officially do in the uh, in the Mayflower? So that is a very
2: good question. <laughs> what do I do? How did I get myself into this? So I'm curating the Mayflower exhibition for the box, which is the new redevelopment of the city museum and other local collections as well. So it's a £40 million redevelopment. So it's a huge-scale enterprise, and so what we decided to do for next year was to make our primary temporary exhibition all about the Mayflower for 2020. It's actually going to be an 18-month show, which is a really long temporary (laughs) exhibition for a museum of any kind. So it really means that I'm actually curating three exhibitions in one. Because if you show 17th century archival material, you can only have it on display really for six months at a time. So I'm doing almost three mini exhibitions in one big exhibition. So if you're a visitor to it, it means that you get to see three different types of collections coming in. So that's one aspect of my job. But I'm also working with... Smoke Signals and the Wampanoag Advisory Committee to Plymouth 400. Uh, so, obviously, they're based in Massachusetts, and I've been working with them to curate the Mayflower show, but also working with them to enable them to make a new wampum belt. So, we managed to secure some British funding for them to make a new piece, and we will tour that new wampum belt nationally. Next year as well.
0: I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to seeing the Wampum Belt. I was reading about it and it's going to tell the story of the Mayflower uh, sailing. Yeah, it's been,
2: you know, it's been so interesting working with them because it's like two and a half years ago when I started this project, I knew nothing about the Mayflower. And I certainly knew nothing about the Wampanoag people and their history. And just to what a degree this is a, a shared story. Whereas now, you know, I've had the complete privilege of working with them at the British Museum, seeing historic wampum collections there and trying to understand what that collection means to Wampanoag people now and what it means to them to see their collections in British museums but also how those collections here can inspire them today to create new wampum belts. And so the design that they've come up with, and I've only just recently seen the design, has all kinds of motifs and imagery which present, I suppose, this ca- commemoration from their perspective, which of course is different from an English perspective and of course it's different from... An American perspective, uh, yeah, absolutely. from an Anglo-American perspective. So I think that's the fascinating nature of doing anything with Mayflower in 2020. It's, it's about seeing this as a shared story.
0: Well, it is an excellent example of international cooperation and how several countries have contributed to the story and to the narrative. And that's something that's always kind of fascinated me. And I mean, some of the paths of discovery that it's led me down in in some of the things that I've researched and and found for, for this podcast has been just awe-inspiring and, and really touching to me in, in a lot of different ways. So is, is there any kind of anything you, uh, any good good secret stories that you've uncovered secret while curating
2: any any oh, little-known mysteries? Do, do you know, Bobby, What what has really struck me is that how this isn't the story that we think it is. I think for 400 years, we have understood this story in a certain way and from a certain perspective. And what I've realised over the past two and a half years of researching it, it is just how many surprises there are within it. So, in a way, my first one was, I suppose, to do with the timeline, in the sense that if you only start the story in 1620, then actually you ignore all those earlier English colonies with all the conflicts all the cultural collision, but all the endeavor within them. So I've spent quite a lot of time looking back at Jamestown
1: mm-hmm.
2: in Virginia, of course. I've been looking at Popham in Maine. And of course, going back to the truly remarkable story of Roanoke. Of course. Yes. Which, I, even now, I just, I. I just find completely captivating, because here we are, what, 430-something years later, so that first voyage goes out in 1584, and you have a colony that exists for six years. The first English child to be born in America is born within it, and yet we don't know what happened to those men, women, and children who were living in America way before the Mayflower even thought about sailing. And I think that was a massive surprise to me. Just as it's surprising when our Wampanoag colleagues said to us, you please don't start this story in 1620, because if you do that, then you deny all those captivity stories, the kidnapping stories, the stories of those European diseases that, of course, arrived in Native America and decimated those populations. And they also said to me, and of course, you know, you forget if you start the story in 1620 that our civilization goes back 12,000 years. And you just go well, that's a completely different perspective on this story. It
0: completely really is, and especially, different. you know, with, with Native Americans, so much of their history is oral. Yeah. And so much of it was passed down generation to generation. And, you know, one of the, the big travesties of American history, the Trail of Tears, wiped out. So much of that oral history. And so these chances to recapture some of that history and re-experience it, I, I think, are just invaluable. And, you know, the, the Wampanoag story goes, you know, with the connection to to John Smith of the yeah. Pocahontas story. You know, if it hadn't been for Squanto's con, uh, interaction with, with the early settlers there— he, he didn't learn English, and without him learning English, he's, he's not able to help the Pilgrim Fathers. And so there's so many, you know, and John Smith named that part of, of Cape Cod as, as Plymouth Bay, so you know there's a, there's a lot of interweaving threads that, that stretch. You're right, you cannot start the story in 1620. And, and that whole area of Virginia, growing up in Tennessee, one state over, Roanoke is a fascinating mystery to me, and always yeah. has been. i've I've visited that area several times over the years, and and I you you just feel something there. There's a mystery there that uh, is is wonderful and all-inspiring. so yeah, yeah
2: it's, uh, and it's and I think it's fascinating that you say that is just thinking about where you start this story, but also about you where it goes, because I think there's a tendency for um for, for us as English storytellers, if you like, or English historians to also finish the story in 1620. I don't know why we've done that. I think it's because ultimately this group of people left and we forgot them. So it's actually really unusual for us to explore the settlement story and those interactions with Native America. Difficult, of course, though they were. And so what I'm trying to do with the exhibition is to look at, okay, what happens to that colony and in that colony and what happens to that population in and around cape cod native american and and english coming in as well how does that change particularly in the 10 years between 1620 and and 1630 and obviously the settlement of Boston. But what I've also had to do is take the story right on because I became completely fixated, you might say obsessed, with looking at how the story has been claimed and reclaimed and lost and found and changed and developed. And so a large part of the exhibition is actually looking at the cultural story as well and how particularly the Victorians have imagined it in paintings, in prose, in poetry. And then of course when you get into to the 20th century, how filmmakers or TV series producers have taken that series on and what aspects of it they've taken and grabbed and focused on and ignored, perhaps.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, you you talk about extending the, the history on it's 150 years until America becomes a country. Yeah, that, that's you know that's not a short time span. That yeah. there's there's a lot that goes on with the settlement and with colonization that that leads up to the American Revolution. But 150 years, you know, this these people were were expecting to be part of England forever. You yeah, know, they went over there colonizing and, and expecting to be part of England for perpetuity, and and. I've always liked that the naming of, of the Plymouth Colony in particular was one of the first that was not named after a person. Uh, that that says a lot to me about the the connection that the Pilgrim Fathers had with the the city of Plymouth and the people of Plymouth. You know, the length of time that they were here getting their repairs, they must have forged relationships. Yeah. They must have really integrated into the community in a a different way
1: well that's
2: so interesting you say that because i think that's another enduring mystery because we don't have any source material about what they did here or even who got off those ships so it's perfectly possible for not many of them to have been walking the streets of Plymouth at all. Equally, it's perfectly possible for everyone to have got off the Speedwell and everyone to have got off the Mayflower. But as you know, the Winslow text refers to we being courteously entertained. So we can be Edward and one other or Edward and many others. but we've just found something really, really tantalising, which I don't think has been found before. So I feel I can tell you oh, if you boy. promise not Spoilers. to tell anyone, Spoil- We won't tell you anybody, I um, promise. So uh, uh, thanks to um, some research into one of the wills of one of the settlers, we now have the name of one Plymouth person they interacted with. We've never had the name of anyone here. So we don't know where they stayed. You know, it's, I I think wishfully we've said, oh, they stayed in the Elizabethan house and Island house and the gin distillery and all these places that exist to us today. So therefore we say, oh, they must have stayed there. We have no evidence of that whatsoever. So up until, you know, a little while ago, we didn't have evidence of anyone they interacted with. But this will (laughs) suggest that a guy in Plymouth well, obviously now his family 400 years on, are still owed some money for a book that was <laughs> borrowed. Oh, that's
0: wonderful. <laughs> that's this a, is the oldest library book I ever exactly, heard. It needs to it's be a returned. Very long loan. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, with their mindset, you have to also wonder, did they interact clandestinely? Did, did they do it in a way as to not highlight who they were? and where they were going. And there must have, you know, this it was a very busy port. Plymouth was an extremely bustling port at that time. And I think they could have easily have slipped in and out of town without letting people know they were the pilgrims and without yeah. letting people know they were the Quakers and the Shakers and, and you know, held their services on the boats and, and and kept that part very separate. And so the people of Plymouth didn't treat them any different than, than anybody else. And yeah, you're... They, 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 Hidden plain sight in many ways, or or I would like to to kind of maybe imagine some of that.
2: Yeah, that's and I think because in a way we have quite a quite a lack of facts. It enables some creative possibilities, doesn't it? Because I mean, we we've got to the stage where we we almost think there was no good reason for the Mayflower to actually come into Sutton Harbour at all. So. That means that actually its safe anchor was in the Catwater, which throws doubt upon this wonderful phrase that we have of the Mayflower steps, which currently date from 1790. But if we overlook that, we know that there was a new set of steps built in uh, 1584. Um, So there are just pieces of this jigsaw that, that we're still putting together. and, and I think that whole clandestine um, experience is quite intriguing too, because there's definitely some research that suggests that perhaps Plymouth at this time had, had some I wouldn't say I wouldn't say separatist tendencies or leanings, but there were certainly some suggestions that, given to some of the sort of the preachers that had come into the town at this time, that they were perhaps uh, a little more Puritan than they were established church. So it's possible, although we haven't got any proof, that those passengers who did come into the town, you know, perhaps Perhaps found some people who were sympathetic here. Perhaps it's nice to think that it's a, it's a more hopeful and it's a bit more of an agreeable story than them having to continue their their secret worship here as well.
0: Well, absolutely, and you know that's not very far from a site of one of the monasteries that was destroyed by, by Henry the Eighth right there, and which became then the mail house and and Saint Martin's school. So. Um, well, you know, is there anything with the commemorations that, that you think we should know and going forward? Anything uh, anything you want to talk about that, that you're just really looking forward to?
2: Do you know, I think one of the things that I am really looking forward to and I feel so, so pleased is happening because it is long, long, long overdue and that is the restoration of the Elizabethan house. Because in so many ways... Plymouth uh, has some parts of a late Elizabethan, Jacobean-built environment, but we don't have a lot of it. But the Elizabethan house is a primary example of a property built within that period. It is a beautiful house on New Street, uh, a street that was new in 1584, we don't exactly know the date of the house but we're doing a lot more work on who lived within it and the kind of work they did the jobs they had and the lives that they lived but for a very long time that house has been in quite a sorry state and hasn't had the investment that it should have had but what 2020 is enabling is for money to actually go into that house genuinely and literally into its fabric so it will be much more secure as a property which hopefully may last for another 400 years and hopefully we'll get to the stage where we're able to reinterpret it as well so it's very much a house of histories not just an Elizabethan house telling an Elizabethan story or even a 1620 house telling a 1620 story but one that represents Plymouth's history over 400 years or more.
0: Well, and the Elizabethan House and and the Merchant House, I think, are also extremely rare examples when we get into the Blitz of Plymouth. Yeah. When when you compare and talk about how much of the the city was destroyed. Yeah. And I think Americans have somewhat of a different perspective on the war because they didn't have Blitz cities and, and things like that. And so... When you when you study that and you realize how much was decimated, the, the sheer percentages to to still retain things like the Elizabethan House and the Merchant House, the the duty should be to restore them because they're such great examples and they're rare because of what what's gone on.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, in terms of the Elizabethan House, we have to thank an American for that restoration, because Nancy Astor was really very much at the center of saving that house way before the war. But in the 1920s, when that house was in danger of being lost due to the slum clearance in the Barbican area. So it's a completely different perspective. And she actually brought American ideals of conservation and preservation to this country and enabled it to be saved for us as Plumothians here, but also for Americans visiting.
0: Well and I think uh, Pomodians don't realize exactly how, how much they need to thank Nancy Esther for. She was a fantastic. When you start delving into the impact that she had, she was a dynamic woman. It must have been palpable to be in her presence uh, back then. So Joe, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you.
2: Such a pleasure. Thank you.:
0: Thanks to Joe for that interview. And at the time of recording this, I for one am very excited for Mayflower 400 to get started. Plymouth cannot wait to show the world what lies beyond the Mayflower Steps. Be sure to check out www.mayflower400uk.org for details of the many events, projects and exhibits that will be happening throughout the commemorations all through the city. You've been listening to Beyond the Mayflower Steps. Production and sound design by Jake Bradshaw. Logo design by Jack Neal. Graphic design and digital communication by Noemi Bracci. And hosted by me, Bobby Inman. For JB International Productions.